We are in the middle of a series called Read Your Bible, okay? And this is something we do once or twice a year where we kind of just specifically take a book of the Bible, or in this case, we're looking at a character. We're looking at the life story of a character, and we we challenge you with one simple thing, okay? The, The goal of these series is very, very simple. If you already know it, go ahead and say it out loud. What's the goal of this series? To read your Bible. That's exactly right. And we do all that we can to help you. Uh, one is that we did give you this, uh, this Bible study. You can do, uh, download the digital version. You can take one of the printed copies in the back. If you are already doing this, I can promise you uh, the last two weeks, the stuff you're getting to walk into uh, is some of the best content, uh, especially when it comes to the lesser known parts of David's story uh, that happened towards the end of his life. You're really getting ready to experience some great questions, some great content in uh, this book study. But we all also just walk you through a simple tool, a tool that we love to use around here to help you approach scripture, and it's called SOAP, all right? It's called SOAP, and that's scripture, observation, application, prayer. And it doesn't matter if it's a five-minute Bible reading in the morning or whether it's an hour-long kind of deep-dive devotional, you can use SOAP to help you understand and to walk into sort of the study of God's Word as you read His Word. You choose the passage or the book or the thing that you're looking to do. You, you have an observation. You know, you, God will, by his spirit, you know, bring some things to, your, to light for you. Then you can talk about to God the application. How does this apply to you? What can we learn? Especially when we're looking at Old Testament. Okay, when we're talking about Old Testament, it's a little hard sometimes to figure out the direct application that God wants for us. And then you pray. Why do we end in prayer? Because we need his power. We need the power of Christ to actually help us apply what we're learning and what we're reading in God's word. I share with this uh, often when we talk about the Bible. Um, I share with you my own personal stories. I, I, um, I, I read the Bible a couple of different times uh, growing up and as a young adult. And I'll be honest, reading the whole Bible, it was kind of a chore. Nod your head if you're with me, right? It was a little bit of a chore for me. I did it only out of the discipline of doing it. I know as a pastor, I should say something better, but I wasn't always a pastor, so there. Um, I, I, you know, it was a chore for me, okay? It was a chore. Um, I didn't, I just, it didn't sometimes click for me, especially the Old Testament, all right? And then one day, one day we came along and there was a one-year Bible and it was a chronological Bible, And I'm telling you, something happened for me. Something just came alive. For whatever reason, my simple brain, just helping me see chronologically how things are laid out, where things sit, how stories go together, how books of the Bible go together. Again, especially the Old Testament. It just came alive in my mind and in my heart. And recently, this has been my favorite, favorite, favorite tool. And I want to share it with you today because no one told me to say this. I'm not getting paid, by the way. Amazon has it on sale, okay? This is on sale for $35. You can't get a good Bible at Lifeway for $35, all right? This is a New Living Translation, NLT, life application, chronological study Bible, and it is phenomenal. The first one I bought, Tracy stole as she steals all my good uh, Bibles. Uh, she took it for her own study, and, and, and we loved it, so we kept it at home, and then I bought another one uh, for work. But I just challenge you, if you don't have one or you've never tried it, I would challenge you to buy this and try it. Give it a try. It's so amazing. I'll even share with you some interesting stuff this morning um, when it comes to the the chronological uh, Bible. We are, again, studying the life of David. And so where we've been, not going to recap it, but just share with you where we've been. We've talked about David's calling, and that's a story maybe some of you know where uh, Samuel comes and and, uh, and goes to, you know, to uh, the, the Jesse's house, and he's the shepherd boy. He doesn't get called in, but he's actually anointed and called to be the next 
king of Israel. And David and Goliath, many, many, many people know the story, but um, we talked about it in terms of how, what was the importance of that in terms of his calling versus who Saul the king currently was and how that started the, the relationship, if you will, between David and Saul. And last week we talked about the extent of that, like the fullness of, of how big that story and that picture actually was. And today we pick up from there, and, and we, we're going to talk about maybe another fairly well-known story, but it's actually something to, to understand the transition of David's life. So 15 years, it was 15 years from the time that he was called as a kid to the time he began, the first time he began to reign and rule as king. All right, but it wasn't all easy. The transition was not easy at all. Matter of fact, if we go to 2 Samuel 2, it says, When David heard the men of uh, Jabbath Gilead had buried Saul, he sent them this message. May the Lord bless you for being so loyal to your master Saul and giving him a decent burial. May the Lord be loyal to you in return and reward you with his unfailing love, and I too will reward you for what you have done. Now that Saul is dead, I ask you to be my strong and loyal subjects like the people of Judah, who have anointed me as their new king. The problem was, is that it was not going to be a smooth transition. There was going to be a, a, a time frame of civil war among the, God's people because there were those in Judah and others that, that anointed David as king, and there was others that, that were followers of Saul, and they wanted to uh, raise up Saul's sons and let them be king. And there was, there was this, a lot of bloodshed because of this conflict. But eventually, after all of that, eventually... All the tribes of Israel come together. And you read that as you go into chapter 5. It says, All the tribes of Israel then went to David at Hebron and told him, We are your own flesh and blood. We are Jewish people. We are the, the people of Israel. In the past, where Saul was our king, you were the one who really led our forces of Israel. And the Lord told you that you would be the shepherd of my people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel and they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years in all. He was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he would reign for 40 years in all. And for us, we're going to look at, I wish that was the end of his story, I really do. I wish it was just like we talked about in terms of Saul, where it says, he, you know, his kingdom would have went on forever. I really wish this was just the, you know, all the rest of the stories were just how, you know, David was going to be the greatest king and he was going to bring his people peace. And he did all that. He won many battles. He brought, the, he brought around an era of the, one of the greatest eras of Israel's history. But somewhere a little over halfway of his reign, he has a moment. He has a moment that's going to change how his story is actually going to end. And over this week and next week, we want to talk about that. We want to shine a light on, if you will, sort of the legacy of David and what, what, what started it and how did it unfold in terms of his life and, and how he's still known as a man after God's own heart, but his story does not end the way that you would think his story might end. About 22 years into his reign, about 22 years into his reign, he's 52 years old, we see this moment, we see this story in David's life. It says, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, 
After his midday rest, that's a nap, everyone. Okay, so naps are good. Okay. David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was and that he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period, which by the way, if you don't know the Levitical law in terms of how all this worked, I mean, ladies, you sh- you were, we're thankful for technology. Okay, let's just be thankful. Um, there was a lot that went into this, and the real reason that this is brought up is just so you understand the timing, that when she came to the palace, um, she had just had her period, so she was not pregnant. And this says she returned home, but later Bathsheba discovered that she was, what's the word? Yeah, uh-oh. She sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. And this is the beginning of what we see in terms of David's cover-up. David has taken what he wanted. He has taken what he as a king feels like he's allowed to take and does something behind the scenes that he doesn't think anyone's going to notice. Doesn't pay attention to the fact that, that she has just gone through this ritual. And then she says, oh, by the way, this night, this one-night stand, if you will, I'm pregnant. And David, you begin to see David's steps as he begins to try to cover up the thing that he's decided to do, the thing that he justified his actions for, and it only continues to snowball and get worse and worse. To give you a real quick uh, story, he, he calls Uriah back from the war because he's out with the army. And he calls Uriah back from the war and claims to want to give him a little R&R. He wants to give him a little time to go home and, and be with his wife. And the problem is that Uriah doesn't do that. He actually sleeps in the gate, in the palace gate with the other guards. And the next morning, David finds this out and he goes and he says, what's wrong with you? I just gave you this R&R, like, why didn't you go home to your wife? And he said, and he said, and this is paraphrasing, but he said, look, how, how could I do that? My brother and our, my, my band of brothers is out there at war. How could I possibly go home and do this? I will not betray my brother soldiers like that. And so David says, well, okay, and then he invites him to dinner and does the next best thing he thinks he can do. He, he gets him completely drunk and sort of puts him in the direction of Bathsheba and says, go. And he finds out the next day that he still didn't go home. He still went to sleep in the palace with the, at the, with the palace guards at the gate of the palace. And so David takes his next course of action. Says the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander of his armies, and said, and he gave it to Uriah to actually deliver. And this letter instructed Joab, station Uriah at the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. He sends the news back to David. Not only that Uriah the Hittite was killed, that his orders were followed, but that other men suffered death as well. And he goes on to say, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her into the palace. And she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. I take a pause in this moment because 
As far as everyone else was concerned, with the exception of Joab and maybe with the exception of a few people in the palace who might have known better, as far as everything on the outside looked, David was clean. David had covered up his, uh, his actions. David had you know, uh, connived and, and manipulated his way around a situation that he, he started off as wrong and only got worse. And as far as everyone else was concerned, he did an honorable thing to take one of his mighty men, to take one of his wives who was pregnant into his home and to marry her and let her become one of his family so that he could then raise this child. And to everyone on the outside looking in, that would have been like an incredibly onerous, chivalrous thing to do that King David was doing for Uriah's family now that she's widowed. But God knew better. And the Lord was displeased with what David had done. So God sends the prophet Nathan to David. Now at this point, just to let you know, Samuel has passed away. We didn't talk about that in the life of Saul. He passed away when Saul was still king. And so Samuel's passed away, and now the new prophet for King David is Nathan. And he's already had a couple of uh, conversations and, and instances with David, if you go back and read. But here God sends Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town, and one was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. And he raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children, and it ate from the, the man's own plate, and it drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. And one day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. Read those first three words out loud. Yeah, read it, like, read, it, read it like it actually feels here in the moment, right? David was furious. Why? Because David was a shepherd boy. This is a story specifically for David to speak to David. David would probably be one of the only few people, and not just in terms of a king, one of the few kings that would understand the significance of what it would be to have a little lamb and to raise it up and to care for it and hold it and feed it the way that this story describes. So David is furious. David gets the heart of the story. He said he's furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man, for he stole, for the one he stole, and having no pity. And Nathan said to David, read those four words. Oh, read it the way Nathan would have read it. You are that man, right? Here's Nathan's moment where he says, look, you're that man. As you cast your own judgment, you're the man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says that I anointed you king of Israel, and I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. God says, if that wasn't already enough, I would have provided for you. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? 
For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites, and you've stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord God says. Because of what you've done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. And we close with the fact that David confessed to Nathan. Read those words out loud. I have sinned against the Lord. Now I encourage you to read more. I encourage you to read on. The story is not over. There's so much more to this story. And again, over the next, next today and next week, we're going to talk more about how this story unfolds and the, the impact of this moment and how it plays itself out in the, in the legacy of David. But today I want to stop there when it comes to the application and, and observation that we can pull, I believe, from this for us as a church. Lord, Nathan, David told Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is not going to be David's, this is not David's only sin. But this is recorded to us and for us for a reason. This was given to the God's people to pass down from generation to generation through oral history. This story for a reason. Now here's the problem that I find sometimes with Old Testament stories, is that we can too often go straight to what I call the direct observation, okay? Especially in the, in the, in the Old Testament where there's a lot of things we don't understand and it's hard to dig in. And, and so we just hit the direct observation, right? We're just going to hit this. Don't sleep with another man's wife and have her husband killed. Done, right? Direct observation. It's very, God, I wasn't planning on doing that anyway today, Right? Ladies read it and go, you know, don't take a bath on the roof. That's a great application. That's a direct observation. Check, right? Not going to do it. And yet again, I believe this story was given to us for something larger than that, something that, that uh, uh, aligns with the whole of Scripture. And that is why David responded the way he responded, responded and said, Lord, I've sinned against you. And that is this, that every sin comes prepackaged with consequences. This is something you'll see in the whole of Scripture, is that every sin, no matter how sorry you are, no matter what kind of mistake you thought it was, no matter, okay, hear me, no matter what kind of weight you feel in the moment or what you feel later when maybe you are caught or it finally catches up with you, regardless of it, every sin comes prepackaged with consequences. And you're going to find this in the whole of God's word. That even for David, not necessarily feeling it right away, but fully realizing it later on and then feeling it later on through his legacy and his life. Sometimes the consequences are seen. Sometimes they're unseen for a while. But no matter the case, every sin comes prepackaged with consequences. God has created a system in this world of sowing and reaping. 
And if you do things you're not supposed to do, you, things are going to happen that aren't supposed to happen. Everybody with me? Nod your head. This is the system that God created. Okay, There is judgment in this. You go on and read, and there is literal judgment in terms of what God says is going to happen. And yet, a lot of what we see sometimes in terms of judgment comes just from the prepackaged consequences that happen because of sin. They are prepackaged with consequences, every single sin. And yet again, I don't know if the sin... The sin itself, again, the adultery and the murder, I don't know if that's the thing we're supposed to pull away from this story in terms of application. If we understand that every sin comes with prepackaged with consequences, then we need to understand how God sees sin. And I believe the application for this story has everything to do with David's response. And that is this, we need to confess our sins to the one whom we've sinned against. We need to confess our sins to the one whom we've sinned against. You know, David sinned against Bathsheba, calling her in, taking her by force, by his authority, by his right as a king. He sinned against her. He sinned against Eliam for for doing that to his daughter. He sinned against Uriah for taking her when he was gone. He sinned against Uriah for having him killed. He sinned against the families of all the innocent soldiers that would die the same time he had Uriah killed. The sin doesn't stop. He sinned against all of them, and yet David responds with the fact that first and foremost, he has sinned against the Lord. And this has everything to do with how David sees his sin because of how God sees his sin, which then leads us to the question, do you view your sin as a sin against God? Do you? This is a question that, that we would walk away with in terms of the, not just the observation but the application itself. Do we really view our sin as a sin against God. See, the problem with our current generation, and it's not a brand new thing. This has been happening since the dawn of time in all humanity, but we're seeing it a lot more in terms of our current uh, generational uh, understanding of sin, is that we as humans, we usually only base sin off of how it affects us, how it affects someone close to us, or how it impacts others in terms of how others tolerate it. That's how we view sin. And the reality is, is that if everyone accepts something, then there's no possible way you can tell me it's a sin. There's no way. You can't tell me that something is wrong when everyone around me believes that it's right. You can't tell me that God is going to call something a sin when it's my choice, it's my right to do it. You can't tell me that something's a sin when it impacts other people when I believe that it shouldn't impact them. It's not their choice. It's not their, it's not their opinion that I'm after. It's mine. So God, you can't tell me that that's a sin. I'm not going to view it as a sin. 
When it doesn't affect me the way you think it should, it doesn't, I don't think it affects me, I don't think it affects those around me, or it shouldn't, or I don't see how it impacts everything as a whole, so therefore it is not, in no way, shape, and form can it be viewed as sin. And when we, as followers of Christ, kind of lean into that culture, then there's no possible way that we could answer this question and say, do we really see our sin as a sin against God? Well, no, because that's not how we measure sin. When you lied to somebody at work this week, do you really think that was a sin against God? When you blew up in anger in your home at your spouse, even this weekend, do you honestly believe that that's a sin against God? Sex outside of marriage, not paying your taxes, gossiping about someone else's problems, hating someone in your heart, getting drunk last night so you're having to now watch this online because you couldn't make it this morning. All the trouble and discord that you like to stir up online, especially over politics, the jealousy you feel when you compare your life to those on Instagram, and the times that you don't give, you don't give to someone and, and be generous with, with what you have because of the greed in your heart. These are sins, and it lists many, many, many more. And yet for most of us, and I'm saying us, me, when we lean into how culture and, and, our, and our humanity views and looks at sin, there's no way we're going to get to where we need to go in terms of our relationship with Christ when we don't even think that our sins were sinning against God. There's no way we're going to view it that way. And so we have to ask this question because when we read the story, we see David's response. We don't view it that way, but David most certainly did. Yes, David sinned against a whole lot of people, but first and foremost, his response was, you know what? I have sinned against the Lord. And one of the wonderful things, again, going back to the chronological Bible, is that in these rare moments, when you're reading through 2 Samuel and you're reading through the story and you get to the part where, where Nathan confronts David with the weight and the decision of his sin and he gets ready to cast that judgment on his sin and the consequences that David's going to live with for the rest of his life, right then in the chronological Bible, you'll see Psalm 51. Why? Because right after he says that moment, right after he says, I have sinned against God, the people who curated this took the psalm that is recorded as David's confession to God after he had done this with Bathsheba and been caught. And so right then and there, as you're reading, you can see not only when David says that, but then you can go on to read the heart of David and how not only he just in one statement viewed his sin, but how he approached God with the sins of Bathsheba and Uriah and those others. And it says this, we'll just read a few verses. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. Wash me clean of my guilt and purify me from my sin, for I have recognized my rebellion. 
I've recognized that I've wanted to live my life the way I wanted to live it, and I rebelled against you. That's why he views that as sin. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Hey, real quick, how many of you, when you finally recognize the weight of your sin, whether or not you even believe you sinned against God, how many of you are willing to go to God and say, you know what, everything you're getting ready to do, all the consequences that I'm going to have, all the things that I'm getting ready to live through, hey, God, it's just. Because I did all of this in my own rebellion, and I sinned against you. He goes on to say, don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. See the personal wording of this? Oh, it, he knows that it affected other people. He knows what he's done, but he is first and foremost concerned with what he has done in his relationship with God. And then later on he says, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would have offered one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. He, he basically is saying, you know, God, you didn't tell me that I needed to make this up somehow. You didn't tell me to go out and make it right. You didn't tell me that there was a bunch of work that I needed to do to solve this problem or to get myself out of this situation. You didn't require the offering. You didn't require the sacrifice. What you simply wanted was for me to see my sin the way you see my sin and to break my heart. That's what you wanted from me. Because, God, you will never turn away a repentant heart. If our application is to confess our sins to the one whom we've sinned against, then the prayer, the prayer has to be centered on the fact that growing in Christ really does require a heart of confession and repentance. That no matter where you are in your journey with God, like you may still be having, you may still have a ton of questions that you need answered that you're still investigating, you're still working out, and I understand that. But I'm telling everybody in this room, I don't know where you are in your relationship with Christ, but I'm telling you, you're going to have to get to a point at some point in your walk with God in which you are going to have to begin to see sin the way God sees sin. And that your lies and your slander and your pride and your adultery and your sexual immorality, right? And your gossip and your selfish ambition, you're going to have to get to a point that you recognize that these are sins against God. Regardless of how it affects anyone else. It affects you. And it affects your relationship with him. Part of growing in our faith, part of growing in Christ requires this heart of confession. To confess our sins before God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that he will not turn away a repentant heart. Now I know, I know this is not one of those messages that you're going to leave today all just jacked up and inspired. Woo, mad. 
made me feel so good today, right? I understand. But Paul tells Timothy that the Word of God that teaches us, that is useful in all things to teach us, he tells us that the Word of God does three things. It corrects, it rebukes, and it encourages. That's what the Word of God does. And it can't all be encouragement, and it can't all be inspiration. Sometimes he needs to correct the way we think. Correct the way we view our sin and how we categorize sin and how we try to justify sin. He needs to rebuke our behavior because we've tried to get away with some things like David tried to get away with some things and we've only made things worse. And yet it's still there to encourage. Because we know, we know that our path to growing in relationship with Christ, to get closer to God, only happens by confession and repentance. See, the biggest problem with sin is not, again, don't understand, I'm not talking about, I know it affects people, but the biggest problem with sin is that it separates us from God. Like every single lie, every single sin, every single time we choose to live life our way instead of God's way, causes more and more and more and more separation from him. Because that's what sin does. And it's the confession of sin, it's the repentance of your heart that draws you closer to God. To confessing to whom you have sinned against. And to know that you got to pray. I'm telling you, that requires prayer. To say, God, it's only by your grace and it's only by your power. Can you restore the relationship? Can you, can you bring me back close to you? Can you blot out the stain of my sin and restore unto me the joy of your salvation? That's, in, that's the encouragement that we get today. Oh, yes, we have to be corrected. Oh, yes, we have to be rebuked. But he never leaves us without the encouragement that on the other side of this very difficult journey, he is waiting for you. He is waiting with open arms, full of grace, to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, it is only by your power and grace that we can see sin the way you see sin. And we would never, God, we confess, we would never, we would never put a list of sins on paper and put murder and gossip beside one another like you did. Because that's just not how we, in our sin nature, in our humanity, that's just not how we naturally see it. So God, would you correct the way we see our sin? Would you rebuke the way we've tried to justify our behavior that is in rebellion to the ideals and instructions you've given us. And God, may we be encouraged this morning. Encouraged that just like David, even, even though he was going to experience the fullness of the judgment of you, he was going to feel the fullness of, this, of, this, uh, of, of the consequences of his actions through his family and through his legacy. God, he would still be known. He would still be lifted up by you as a man after his own heart, as one who desired to honor you. God, that can be us today. 
with a heart of confession and repentance, God, you can allow us to continue to grow in Christ and grow in you no matter what we've done. As long as we understand that we've sinned against you. God, I pray today that we would leave this place changed, that we would leave this place transformed more and more to look like you, to see the, th- way, thing, the, see the way you see things and to respond with that heart of repentance and confession. I pray all of this for us in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.